everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're continuing with our election shows to talk about the Texas legislature. So if you listened to our last episode, you know that March 1st is primary election day in Texas. And primaries are when you get to pick which candidates from your own political party will run in the general election in November. So if you're a Democrat, you're only going to see Democrats on your ballot this time around. And if you're a Republican, you'll only see Republicans. Now, in our last episode, we focused on two very important local county level races that are happening in the Democratic primary this year. Today, we're going to level up a bit and focus on another important Democratic primary race, but this time at the state level, specifically the Texas legislature. So just like there is a U.S. House and a U.S. Senate, Texas has a state level House and Senate, which collectively we call the Texas legislature. The Texas legislature has 31 senators and 150 House members, who we also just call representatives. And the legislature sets state policy and state budget, but more specifically, they really tend to focus on education, healthcare, and housing, as well as a lot of social issues. You might remember the Texas legislature has gotten involved in things like trans kids in sports, so-called bathroom bills, and critical race theory in recent years. And, of course, of special note lately, the Texas legislature also has a lot of say over our state's electric grid, as well as other basic infrastructure issues like roads, internet access, and water quality. So how will all of this impact you this election cycle? Well, to break it down a bit, every Texan is represented by one U.S. House member, one U.S. Senator, as well as one state House member, and one state Senator. Which means you'll definitely see an election for both your U.S. House district seat and your state House district seat on the ballot this year. House members in both the U.S. Congress and the Texas legislature serve two-year terms, so they're up for election a lot. Now, neither of Texas's two U.S. senators are up for election in 2022. Those people are Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. You've probably heard their names before, but you don't have to worry about that because they're not on the ballot. And then, depending on which Texas state Senate district you live in, you may or may not have a state senator election on your ballot. State senators serve four-year terms, which means about half of them are up for election at any given time. And P.S. on this, if you're not sure which district you live in, you can look that up by finding your sample ballot at votetravis.com or by visiting vote411.org and entering in your address. Okay, now let's talk about Austin for a second. Travis County is home to about seven different Texas House districts, but many of them aren't very exciting elections because incumbents are just running for re-election unopposed. But there are three local districts with pretty competitive races to keep an eye out for, and those are Districts 50, 51, and 19. District 50 is in northeastern Travis County, and the seat used to be held by Democrat Celia Israel, but she actually left in order to run for mayor of Austin, so you'll see her on the ballot in November. And some Democrats are running to replace her, including James Tallarico, who actually already serves in the Texas House. But because of redistricting after the last census, it became a lot more Republican, so he moved in order to run for this seat in this district. Next up is District 19, and that's in far west Travis County. And the Republican incumbent, James White, left his seat in order to run for the Texas Agriculture Commissioner seat. So lots of Republicans have entered this race to replace him, including former Austin City Council member Ellen Troxler, making this a pretty competitive election in the Republican primary. 
And then there's District 51, which is located in southeastern Travis County and is going to be the focus of today's show. The incumbent in this district is Democrat Eddie Rodriguez, who just left his seat in order to run for the U.S. House of Representatives against former Austin City Council member Greg Kassar. So now seven candidates have entered the Democratic primary race to replace Eddie. And since District 51 is an extremely Democratic district, it's highly likely that whoever wins the primary will easily win the general election in November. So this is really the race you want to focus on. In a minute, you're going to hear some interviews I did with some of the candidates who are running. But first, I just wanted to share a few general tips for things to listen for in these interviews to help you more easily make a choice of who you might want to vote for. As I mentioned, all these people are Democrats, so you're going to hear them agree a lot on the big things. You know, things like wanting to expand Medicaid, higher pay for teachers, etc. So I suggest keeping an eye out for what their top priorities are. You know, there's only so much time in a legislative session, and lawmakers are going to prioritize the things they're most passionate about. So try and pick someone who's passionate about the same things that you are. Another thing I recommend looking for is experience. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but this is another great way to differentiate candidates. You know, is there someone, is there something about their personal lived experience or career path that makes them uniquely qualified to serve as a representative of this district? You know, that's a great question to try and answer as you're listening to all these interviews. And lastly, my tip is try not to get too overwhelmed. (laughs) I know it can be a lot with all these candidates on the ballot and so many different positions, but this is really important and a really great opportunity to make some real change. These people are going to be the next leaders in our state, and they're going to have the ability to make some big decisions about how we recover after COVID, what our public school system should look like, and whether or not we have a functioning power grid. That's a big deal. And so if you've been angry or upset about the state of our state lately, now's the chance to vote in some leaders who can really change that. It's actually kind of cool. So don't stress. Give this podcast a listen and then get out there and go vote. Okay, now on to our first candidate. Let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Maria Luisa Lulu Flores. All right, let's give that a listen. Okay, I'm here with Lulu, and we are talking about your candidacy and why you're running. And um, yeah, I thought we could start with that. Let's let's just give a little background on yourself and who you are and kind of how you got to this point today where you're um, running for elected office. Okay. Okay, I'm Lulu Flores, and I am a 46-year resident of Travis County. I've lived in uh, my neighborhood for 40 years. Uh, I'm an attorney and uh, with 25 years of legislative experience, I started working at the Capitol while I was in law school and I was chief of staff for the first Mexican-American woman ever elected to the legislature, Representative Irma Rangel from Kingsville. Uh, Then I went on to become uh, the legislative director at the State Bar of Texas and then I was the legislative Uh, assistant director for legislation and alternative fuels policy at the Texas Railroad Commission for almost 10 years. So lots of experience. Um, As I said, I've been 30 years of community activism and involvement in my community. I am uh, the last of nine kids. I was born in Laredo, Texas, but I came to UT to go to school and law school. And so I, of course, stayed uh, with maybe a one-year gap of my residency here. 
but uh, I've been here for the past uh, at least 40 years. Yeah. And one thing I noticed, you know, when I was looking on your website and through your bio is you've done a lot of work around women's rights in particular here um, in the state of Texas. Can you talk a little bit about some of that work in particular? Right. Yes. I have been a member of the National Women's Political Caucus for over 30 years. I was their national president for four years, and I have been actively engaged in uh, women's rights. Also, I was a board member and president of the Women's Advocacy Project, which is now the Texas Advocacy Project, uh, and also served on the board of the Battered Women's Center, and I was a, a board member for Planned Parenthood of Austin uh, early on in my career, beginning in the mid-80s uh, to close to the mid-90s, so always engaged in uh, women's rights, and I will segue into that's pretty much why I'm running because I am incensed about what is going on at the Capitol. I'm running to push back against SBA, Greg Abbott's attacks on women's reproductive freedoms, as well as his attacks on our voting rights and trans kids. I wanna stand up for the dignity of all Texans uh, and promote investments in healthcare and education and help ensure that every Texan has a chance to achieve their full potential. And that includes the constituents of District 51. I wanna improve the quality of life of the residents there and ensure that we get our fair share of resources, of COVID and winter storm uh, you know, uh, payments. And I, that also means addressing affordability and gentrification, broadband access, food deserts and infrastructure needs for the district. Yeah, you know, you, you talk about this history of, of the work you've done around reproductive rights and, and women's rights and, uh, I'm just wondering kind of how you take this moment. You mentioned this is a big driver of why you want to run. It must be very frustrating. It feels definitely like a time where some of the progress that's been made on those issues is being rolled back really actively at the legislature. I guess, like, what is your approach to that? Or how do we, where do we go from here? I think a lot of women who are are looking at this issue are frustrated and feel hope, you know, feel a little, a lack of hope and like they can't do anything at the legislature. What do you feel like you could bring into the legislature if you were elected to, to be a voice for a lot of these folks? Well, um, you know, 49 years ago, we had uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade was just this last Saturday. And yes, you're right. They have pushed us back 50 years almost on, on our, on our rights. And it's very frustrating and, you know, we just need to remember the, the adage of don't get mad, get even. And we really need to, at this point, you know, realize we have to organize and mobilize and continue to push back. And as I was telling uh, the, the women on my panel, the representatives who currently are serving uh, Travis County, the, the delegation, Travis County delegation, um, you know, they are, you know, it, it, we're in it for the long haul, as we've always known we have been, but we need to really make sure that we stand strong, stand together, mobilize, vote. <laughs> it's so important. And that's why the other issue of, of cutting back on our voting rights is so important to push back on as well, because we need to make sure that our voices are heard at the, at the uh, ballot box. And so make sure that every vote counts, your vote matters, and so and elections have consequences. So make sure 
that we elect the best possible people to these positions so that we can have strong voices at the legislature and who aren't afraid of bullies and will stand up to them. Yeah, you know, you you have a lot of experience with the legislature. Like you mentioned you um, worked there as a staff member. What what have you seen like change over the years that, that you've been involved in the legislature and, and and what kind of experience do you feel like you can bring in order to be a more effective representative? Because it is always tricky to be kind of the minority party at the legislature and actually get things done. Well, I have a history of getting things done. And you're right, it has changed tremendously. Uh, Texas used to pride itself in the fact that it could be bipartisan and work across the aisles. And that's how we always managed to get legislation passed. Uh, We had to build coalitions. When I first started, the Mexican-American caucus caucus was very small and the Black caucus was small. So we, you know, uh, joined forces together to build coalitions uh, uh, to get bills passed, even building coalitions with rural members. And so you, you learn to do that and you learn to build bridges on issues that are not hot button issues, not these uh, wedge issues. And so, you know, the, the, the way I perceive this is, you know, fight on the issues that are important to us and push back where we have to. But at the same time, I'm willing to work with anybody across the aisle or anywhere <laughs> that is willing to get solutions done, you know, for problems and issues. And so the, the, you know, try to take the partisanship out of certain issues that you can work on and sort of build bridges there. And so I've done that throughout my whole legislative career. And so I'm gonna bring that experience with me. I know I may hit brick walls here and there, but I'm persistent and I'm consistent and I don't give up. And so, you know, that is part of, you know, my work experience. And I, so I intend to bring that experience and that ability to get things done to the position of state representative of District 51 and do my best to bring positive solutions to problems in my in my district. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about another um, experience point that you have there where you were the assistant director of alternative fuels policy, the Railroad Commission. You know, this is now, right now where we're at in Texas, it's energy is a topic that we're all talking about again. Um, I'd love to, I guess, get your take on, on what that experience, you know, again, can bring for you and and where you'd like to see Texas heading dealing with our our energy issues and how that relates to climate as well as you know what we even saw last year with Winterstorm Uri. Right. Well, back in 20 um, you know when I when I worked at the Railroad Commission from 92 to almost 2002 uh, which is 10 years uh, and we were working on alternative fuels so we were pushing the envelope the energy policy act had had passed at the federal level. So it was great. And we had a lot of clean uh, air issues here in Texas. Everybody would think about LA being the dirtiest, but Houston really at the time. And now Austin isn't far behind either with uh, ozone action days and air quality issues. And so we really, you know, I got an insider's view as to how this works. I also know how the commission works as well. And I know it's, you know, a lot of people have problems with the commission, and I agree that, you know, certain special interests have a lot of uh, hold sway, uh, but I, you know, I also, you know, I know uh, the agency, 
Uh, um, it's not a mystery to me, and I am not afraid of those issues. I've dealt with them all. And so I think I can find inroads and ways to help, uh, you know, bridge some um, divides maybe and work on some of these energy issues. And, and that, you know, people that died <laughs> didn't care if they were blue or red, correct? Mm -hmm. You know, it, they were victims of this winter storm and we really need to get on top of it and make sure that we are finding ways to protect our citizens and our, our residents of this state. So we really need to put aside the politics and really get down to brass tacks and work on the real issues and make sure that we're coming up with solutions that are going to protect our, our, our uh, the residents of our state. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we just, we've talked about a few different issues here, but um, if you were elected, what other priorities would you kind of see as top that you'd want to tackle right away? We talked some about women's rights and voting and energy, but what are kind of your main things you'd like to focus on right from the start? Well, I want to help. Uh, I want to stand by our public schools and our public public school teachers and education, we really need to fund education at a higher level at the state. And so I'm willing to push on that issue and follow the lead of those who have more experience in the education area, like, uh, you know, our representative, Jeannie Nahosa, who was a school board member and understands that issue very well. Uh, I've, I've lived through it for the last 40 years and, you know, it, we really need to increase the amount of money that we get uh, put into our education system so that our kids have the opportunities they deserve. We have to pay our teachers more. We need to treat them as the professionals that they are. And they've gone above and beyond during this pandemic. So we really need to make sure that their pay is good and that their retirement systems are good. And the same goes for our public employees, public state employees. And uh, we need to stand up for our workers and make sure they have good paying jobs and benefits uh, you know, as well. And so we really need to you know, tackle those issues. And also healthcare is a huge issue because that is the issue that people are one step away from homelessness in a lot of instances because the cost of healthcare is so high. And Texas needs to expand Medicaid. We need to go get beyond this uh, partisanship and make sure that we're bringing in those federal dollars to make sure that our, you know, um, that our, our residents are getting the healthcare they deserve uh, we need to invest more in mental health and uh, in our mothers and children and really uh, address the, the burnout for our frontline workers. They have been, you know, for two years, more, almost more than two years now are just working at 110% and we really need to, to give them some, some help. Yeah. And, you know, specifically when you look at the district in which you're running, it includes parts of Del Valley as well and, and areas where there have been major inequities in healthcare access in particular, and housing is becoming a bigger strain and issue in that part of town as more and more people are, are getting pushed out of Austin City Center because of affordability. You know, you've talked a lot about all the different community groups you've been a part of, but how do you feel like as a representative, you could really serve that community in particular? Um, the areas of Del Valley that I think have been historically underrepresented and ignored by a lot of government agencies? Well, yes and no. You know, uh, there is maybe there needs to be more education about the availability of these uh, services. Uh, but I agree there are food deserts there that need to be addressed. There are 
we have healthcare clinics, but I think we need to have a better approach. And I see now that Central Health uh, is doing a great job of trying to do the more outreach to the community. I just read a report today from their consultant that is engaging the community. And really a lot of it is they need more education about what is services are available to them, more access to them, you know, shorter time uh, for appointments. So we have the services, we just need to distribute them better. And I think we need to really focus on preventive care. We can't wait till, you know, health, health issues become acute and they need to go to the hospital or to the emergency rooms or whatever to take care of them. We really need to have an approach of preventive care, uh, education, and make sure that our families are educated about how to take care of themselves, you know, how to mothers and families take care of their kids, uh, healthy eating, nutrition, education. So, and what I would do is really, as a state representative, I would liaison and work with our county and city and federal officials to bring in all resources to come to bear to help solve these problems. You know, there's pieces of the puzzle that belong to everybody. Uh, so yes, we can provide some funding at the state level, but at the same time, I think it's really a matter of, you know, making sure that we're all working in concert so that we can come up with the best approaches to take care of our, of our residents. Yeah. And, you know, this is semi-related, but, you know, one thing that always frustrates me sometimes about the Texas legislature is it can be really hard for an average resident to be engaged in that process. Things happen really quickly and it feels like they're making these super consequential decisions that happen in a blink of an eye and it's really hard to be engaged in that process. And so I wonder, you know, as a representative, what you would hope to do in order to engage the public, especially when it comes back, you know, quite frankly, again, a lot of these issues revolve around people showing up and and trying to stop bad bills from happening from the democratic perspective. So um, what would you like to see or kind of how would you try and engage the residents of this district? Because we are lucky enough to be close to the Capitol physically in order to be involved. Yes. Well, uh, the world is run by those who show up. I, I strongly believe in that. And I also believe in the saying that, uh, you know, we are the change that we are waiting for. So we need to make sure that, that our um, residents understand the legislative process. It's not easy. I've lived it. I know it. I, you know, I know the ins and outs of it. Uh, you know, I can... I know how to pass bills, I know how to kill bills, I know how to, you know, uh, work for compromise as well and get good solutions. So really, I think during the interim, it would be great to make sure that we have citizen education uh, about the legislative process and not wait till the legislative session because, you know, normally it's all hurry up and wait at the beginning and it's the committees getting formulated and all this up. And then by March, then things go from zero to 90 or 110 and you're trying to play catch up. So I think first of all, citizens need to have a better understanding of how all this works and how important learning the importance of showing up and making their voices heard. I know sometimes they, they do all they can to not let your voices be heard. So, but we really need to show up and engage and not take that you know, sitting down. So really it's about education, about the process and demystifying it and having the experience that I have 
uh, I'm in a position to do some things with the community to make sure that they understand the process uh, ahead of time. So when the sessions do come, they are they know where to engage and how to engage. And I would make sure that I make the office available to the citizens uh, so that they can uh, learn to engage and figure out how to to have input into the process. So it's all about communication. So uh, I, I, would, I would plan on making sure that people have notice about. That was my job in a lot of ways when I worked at the state bar. I had to notify uh, the lawyers across the state about what was coming up and how mm -hmm. to, and what to testify and when to show up. So that's kind of the work that I did in coordinating uh, legislative programs. Uh, so, you know, I have that in my background. Uh, I would easily be able to make sure that we have, you know, some seminars and education things in the interim to make sure citizens understand the process. Mm -hmm. And then just to close, if people want to learn more about you, what's a good website for them to dig a little deeper? Great. Well, they can go to my website at votelulufloresco.com. They can see my really large and growing list of supporters, including uh, all of the uh, endorsers who have, uh, you know, supported me, are supporting me in this race, including the AFL-CIO and Education Austin, uh, a lot of our elected leaders. So they can go there, they can contact me. There's an opportunity to ask questions as well, uh, provide feedback and, or sign up as a supporter. So vote luluflores.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Maria Luisa Lulu Flores. Next up, Cody Arn. All right, I am here with Cody, and we are talking all about his candidacy. And, and I'm thinking maybe just start, let's just start with you. Who are you? Why are you running? A little bit of background. Yeah, my name is Cody Arn. I am running for State House District 51 here in Texas, uh, which is located almost entirely within Austin. Uh, it goes down to the southeast corner of Travis County. Uh, I am a lifelong Texan. I grew up in Central Texas. Uh, my family was uh, impoverished. We were in the military. And then after the fallout of everything with 2008, my dad lost his job uh, and we found ourselves in really hard times. Um, we only survived because of welfare programs, food stamps, things like that. And that gave me a sensitivity to understanding just how much policy really does affect the lives of those in need. Um, I did very well in high school, but then couldn't go to college because we just simply couldn't afford it. And that kind of kicked off this lifelong passion of trying to figure out how we can make our society more equitable for those in need. Um, and that's everything from housing security to making sure that we have food security and protections there, um, being able to expand healthcare and education for all Texans and, and Americans in general. And uh, yeah, um, our legislature this last year introduced uh, dozens of anti-LGBT pieces of legislation. I am a member of the LGBT uh, community. And so seeing those attacks kind of crop up and knowing uh, with the background that I have just how much we can affect things, uh, that's what made me decide, you know what, this might be the, uh, the year to run. And what is your professional background? What have you been, been up to? 
So I was a professional actor for several years. I traveled around the country in New York, Chicago, um, and Austin uh, doing um, acting for a long time. And then as I started to shift more into politics, I focused a little bit more on my day job. Uh, and so I've also been a hotelier for several years. And I, I currently manage two hotels in Southeast Austin and uh, have been expanding my role there. So uh, I come from primarily acting in hotels. Right. And then I think I saw on your website, you've also been doing some work, though, on some political campaigns here in Texas. That's true. Yeah. So I, I got my my start in politics, volunteering for the Beto O'Rourke campaign, uh, his Senate campaign in 2018. That was really the first time that I got actively involved in politics. And then um, from there, I continued to work more on other um, political campaigns, both here in Austin, but uh, not just for candidates, but also for different issues. So specifically um, teaming together with homes, uh, not handcuffs against Save Austin Now's anti-homeless measures, um, and then uh, campaigning on th their different issues. Ground Game Texas um, just recently got approved by the city council for their ballot measures uh, to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana and to ban no-knock warrants here in Austin. And that was another one of those uh, campaigns that I helped with. Right. And so, you know, in talking about the legislature and, and some of your key priorities, I was looking through your website and I saw housing pop up a lot. Obviously, you know, we don't need to tell Austinites that housing is a big problem <laughs> and an issue. Um, but I'd love for you to talk some about what you feel like the legislature's role can be in this, because I think historically or a lot of the conversation in Austin really is about city council. But what do you feel like the legislature could bring to the table as far as helping to improve our housing affordability? Yeah, that's a great question. This is actually something that comes up a lot because you're right, housing is often um, considered just a local issue. It's just the city council. But in fact, the city council's hands are actually really tied because there's only so much that we can do. So for instance, one of the issues that we have here in Austin specifically is that our land use uh, zoning laws were written in 1984. It was the Reagan administration. It was before the yogurt shop murders. The Austin population was half of what it is now. It was an entirely different city, but we still have the same zoning laws in place. Um, those uh, protect things like single family zoning, uh, which make it harder to build denser zoning, build more housing. Uh, it makes it harder for multiple families to live within Austin because we just are using up our real estate in other ways. Uh, and so we need to be able to change our zoning laws. Uh, but part of the issue is there are several state laws that actually protect, uh, uh, I'm sorry, protect uh, single family zoning so that even if a city council genuinely wanted to completely outlaw single family zoning or, or reform it to where developers had to have some affordable housing units in their building or have mixed uh, income housing, they actually can't. Um, we can't change those zoning laws. We need uh, to have folks who are on the state level being able to change our state laws. And I think that we also need folks in federal offices that are willing to partner with this issue as well. I think part of the problem is we try to categorize these issues too much between federal, state, county, or city, when in fact it requires folks on every level being willing to work together to make sure that this is all working towards the goal of uh, preferably universal housing. We want to make sure folks are in homes. Right. And I want to touch specifically on a few different components of that. One is, and I hear this brought up a lot, especially by city council, which is that the legislature does have just some restrictive things in place that don't right. allow us to do some of the 
more subsidized affordable programs that you see in other cities. So that's things like rent control. That's things like, you know, not to get into too wonky terms, but there, I think there are some rules that prevent us from mandating that developers have a certain percentage of their uh, development be affordable. Is that kind of some of what you're talking about is dismantling some of those rules? Absolutely. So just to give you a quick list, a few things that are actually illegal in Texas because of state laws, uh, it's illegal to cap annual rent um, for privately owned apartments. So uh, one of the things that we've seen this last year is uh, rent, the average monthly rent has actually gone up by 25% here in Austin just in the last year. In the last 10 years, rent uh, housing costs have gone up by 81%. It is wildly out of control. Uh, We have a roller coaster that is spun off the tracks and just keeps going. And so one of the things that we need to implement is just basic rent controls, rent stabilization, making sure that from one year to the next, you're not getting a 25, 30% increase on your monthly rent. But that's currently illegal in Texas to be able to cap that rent. So that's one thing that we need to change. Um, inclusionary zoning is some of what we, we talked about just a moment ago. So if a developer builds a new apartment uh, complex, we want to make sure at least a few of those apartments are uh, lower for lower income folks that are affordable, um, not necessarily every building, but doing of the units can actually have a massive effect, but that's also currently illegal to implement in Texas because of state law. Um, Linkage fees for affordable housing, which is effectively where if a company puts in place a new uh, apartment complex, they have to pay a little bit towards affordable housing, maybe in another neighborhood or something like that. We're not allowed to implement that in Texas. Um, There's a a bunch of other options that we could be exploring and that other cities and other states are exploring, but we're held back by our state laws. Right. And so those are some more of the like deeply affordable housing options. Another component of this is more like, you know, what do they call it? Like little a affordability or just affordability doesn't have to be subsidized, but is kind of market rate housing that just more people can afford. And and this is an area I see, you know, definitely some debate at Austin City Council and debate within the Democratic Party. But what do you feel like the legislature could do there? Because there have been some people who are proponents of, hey, you know, we're not able to change our zoning to have a little bit less single family zoning in local areas because local governments don't want that to happen or because local activists don't want that to happen. And could the state step in? Like, where do you stand on that bit of the conversation or what the state can do on that more like market rate affordability and supply issue? Right. Yeah. I I think that this is, um, it's a great question. It touches on like several different issues. Um, One of the things that we have that's a great program here in the States is uh, the Section 8 housing vouchers. Um, They're very helpful. It allows people to be able to use that subsidized housing, but for any market. And currently the Section 8 housing is um, just massively underfunded. And so we aren't able to, the waiting list to get on it is like 10 years. And if you're waiting 10 years to get a house, you're going to find something else or you're going to end up on the streets before that time. Um, And this is just an example of how maybe the federal government can help with this a little bit more. But there are other things that uh, the state can do. So some other options um, in Texas, um, making more publicly owned housing, uh, the state legislature could actually buy tracts of land and then um, have specific developments. It can help work with local governments to um, funnel that money towards it. But it also uh, can create low income housing tax credits, things that um, we have 
federal program for this, but we can do this on the state level to where if an affordable housing project um, is able to then sell tax credits to companies and investors in return for equity for their projects. This would help us work with local businesses to actually be part of the pie. It helps um, us to implement a way that the community is giving towards the community um, and the state can step in and actually help cover some of those costs, but it also can just reform a lot of those laws to be able to make that happen. Yeah. And, and what about, you know, you see conversations from places like California and their legislature where they're at the point where they're saying, we're going to get rid of single family zoning. We're, we're going to change, you know, do you feel like Texas is in a place to that that is necessary or needed? Or do you feel like just changing some of these other programs about affordability would would open up a lot for us? Yeah, I think I think the ban on single family housing is often misconstrued um, with what they did in in California, because it sounds like there will no longer be single family housing. That's not the case. What it is, is there's no longer zoning for just single families houses. So you can still build a house that only has one family, but you could also instead build an apartment complex. Um, One of the issues that we have here in Austin specifically is because of our zoning laws, areas that are extremely popular, people wanna live there like the Mueller neighborhood, for instance, um, we aren't able to build a multifamily, uh, multi-story apartment complex because of zoning laws, but we can build other things like a taxidermy museum, for instance, (laughs) Um, things that aren't necessarily quite as high on our Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, And so with that being the case, I I don't know that banning single family zoning completely is necessarily practical right now in the near term. I think it's uh, a nice concept, but I think that we can take steps in the more immediate term. Um, The other thing about zoning law reform is as great as it is and as necessary as it is, we would still be seeing um, the product of that in five, 10 years, once more development can actually be bought and uh, redeveloped. Uh, So we need to take other steps to make sure that the housing that we already have, those prices are brought down and more in control and that we're providing options for affordability uh, in the immediate term. So I, I don't know that it is the number one priority issue to completely ban single family zoning. It's something that's more of a long-term goal, maybe in 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the other issues you've mentioned. One is your advocacy around LGBTQ rights. And this has been an area where the Texas legislature has been very active lately in trying to really roll back a lot of those rights. And 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 obviously, it's, it seems to me when you introduce yourself, that's a big reason that even drew you to wanting to be engaged in this in the first place. But can you talk a little bit about um, what you feel like the Texas legislature can be doing differently and and how, I guess, especially with this issue, it's like, how do we actually get the legislature to behave differently <laughs> than they've been behaving, especially as, you know, if you were elected, you'd, you'd be this member of a minority party that gets ignored on so many of these issues. And a lot of the job is like standing up and and fighting against bad bills, right? That's like a right. lot of what might your job might be in this area. So I guess, can you talk about kind of your approach there or what you'd like to see? Yeah, um, the 87th legislature, the legislature, I'm sorry, the legislative session that we just finished uh, was one of the most hostile on LGBT rights that we've had in decades. Um, 
just to give a concept of kind of what we're looking at in Texas and, and the, the country right now, um, right now, 63% of transgender Americans are experiencing homelessness, which continues to lead them in drug use and suicide. They're the number one demographic for drug use, suicide, substance abuse, and homelessness. <clears throat> They're the number one demographic to be kicked out of their parents' homes before they reach 18. Uh, one in five transgender Americans under the age of 18 will attempt suicide. That's one every 45 seconds. That is, these are astronomical numbers and they sound overwhelming, um, but there are actually really simple things that we can do. If a teenager finds themselves in an affirming home, something as simple as using their uh, set of pronouns, that number of suicide actually drops in half. If they have access to things like hormonal treatment, um, then that uh, suicide rate drops by another 40%. There are solutions that we have here that can do massive amounts of good because what we have is an epidemic primarily of suicide nobody talks about. Um, when I launched this campaign, I was showing my website to uh, some coworkers and friends. And I have a, a coworker who's actually a Republican. She's a lifelong Catholic woman, um, very sweet. We're good friends, but uh, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues. And she saw my statistics on my website about that, uh, the trans rate of suicide that I was just talking about. And she completely broke down. She was in tears and she said that she had no idea that this was such an issue. And I don't think a lot of people do. I think that if you are in the LGBT community, um, these are things that you live with. These are things that we know about. Uh, but if you're outside that community, it's such a taboo to talk about any of these things. It's already a taboo to talk about suicide. It's another taboo to talk about transgender rights. And so these things just don't have a light shown on them. Right now, Texas does have an LGBT caucus in the Texas House. It is five members. Um, all of them are women. One of them is retiring this year, um, Representative Israel, who's actually running for mayor here in Austin. And so our already small amount of representation on this issue is getting even smaller. Uh, Austin is um, well known nationally as kind of a capital of the LGBT community. Um, we have a lot of members here who live here, a lot of residents. Uh, and so they need representation that can actually speak to that issue. And not just speaking to the experience of being um, gay or queer or trans, but actually knowing what it is to grow up in Texas right now as mm -hmm. these bills are being introduced. Um, as far as what we can do about it, there's some really simple things that we just, we need to take seriously. Uh, right now, conversion therapy is still legal in Texas. This is an incredibly barbaric practice um, that does not work. Uh, and it, it effectively uses Pavlovian treatment, like something out of a clockwork orange, to try to make folks no longer gay through the use of things like electroshock therapy and other horrible um, activities. We This is an incredibly horrific procedure that we still do here in Texas. We need to take steps to outlaw that. Um, we need to make sure that, um, so as I was saying before, transgender Americans are one of the number one demographics to be homeless. Um, part of the reason for that is that they are the number one group that gets kicked out of housing shelters and um, housing assistance because they are trans. Uh, so we need to make sure that they have equal opportunities. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States has already upheld that um, no discrimination on the basis of gender includes that for transgender Americans. We need to make sure that we're putting our money where our mouth is and that folks have equal opportunities in housing and education. And as far as what we can do as a minority party, you're right. Uh, a lot of this is just yelling at people to just, just cut it out, just stop it. And honestly, <laughs> our problem isn't just the other party. Some of the problem is coming from our own party. Um, the anti-trans bill that did make it through that got a lot of publicity about um, uh, kids in schools, in sports, 
<clears throat> that bill was killed in the House and then it was brought back by a Democratic member. These are steps that we need to take and it's not just fighting against Republicans or conservatives. This is not a, a partisan issue. This is an issue of human rights that we need to take seriously. And we're not gonna get there unless we have folks in the legislature who can speak to that experience. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk briefly about voting rights as well. That's another issue I, I saw that seems to be a top priority of yours. This is something that the Texas legislature, especially the last session, really started to dive into, like many legislatures all across the country, and, and a lot of our fundamental voting rights seem to be in threat here. Mm -hmm. Again, what can we be doing in Texas to, to push back on that in, in some way? You know, what what can we be doing to make some, to make some progress? Yeah. I would love to say that I can wave a magic wand and we can fix mm -hmm. all of our voting rights issues here in Texas. Um, but to a large extent, we can't, the people who are in power are perfectly willing to stay in power through whatever means possible. There are laws that we can change. We can increase access to mail-in voting, expanding polling hours, expanding training and payment and legal protections for elections workers. Uh, we can do all of these sorts of things, but not unless we can get it through the legislature. So one of the things that we need to happen is we need federal intervention. Uh, we need folks who are working in Congress uh, and, and um, working in the Senate to be able to take the responsibility seriously of protecting democracy. It's the most fundamental right in our country. It's the whole thing that separated the United States at the time of its founding. And it is a right that we are actively losing because folks are not taking this seriously. Um, I am extremely proud to be in Texas at this time because while our legislature and our governor are perfectly willing to throw out basic democratic freedoms, uh, we have never seen organizational levels on uh, at this level. We have never seen so many folks going door to door talking to their friends about how serious this is. The organization is there. The passion is there. But just like uh, the, the freedom fighters in the 60s and uh, Martin Luther King and other civil rights heroes were willing to put their lives in danger, creating these mass organizational movements until the laws get changed by those in power, those movements will continue to fail. This is one half of the equation. And I think Texans are doing their side of it. But I think that we need the folks who are in office, who have the power while they have that power to be willing to uh, take a stand and actually be willing to protect democratic freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, we're running a little short on time, but I want to make sure we have time really quick to for two final questions. One is, um, if you're elected, I know we've probably talked about all of them, but maybe just summarize or if there's additional ones, kind of top three priorities for you right away, um, either to achieve or to be really heavily focused on, yeah. um, what would those be? Yeah, my number uh, one issue to be focused on is, is housing affordability. And then I also want to make sure that we're shining a light on LGBTQ protections. But if there's one thing that we need to focus on from day one, it's fixing the Texas power grid and making mm -hmm. sure that it is reliable and folks can trust that the lights are going to stay on. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I think this is another issue that I find very frustrating, which is it can be very hard for the average citizen or resident to engage with their with the legislature to feel like they're making a difference at that state level. It's a confusing process and things happen really quickly. If you were elected, what would you do to try and, you know, bring your constituents together and residents together and, and really serve as that that voice or advocate for them? Yeah, I think one of the things that's great about this district is we're one of the smaller ones geographically, which means there's not quite so much ground to cover. Um, we can actually host an event 
and get folks to come in. Um, we can be partnering with local business leaders and actually be holding um, town halls and hearings and things like that. Um, the Texas legislature is so short. Uh, we only get about five months every two years. And so it's, it's crazy. But that other two years needs to be spent meeting with constituents, hearing from their, um, hearing from them on the issues, making sure that we have members of the legislature who are actually involved in their communities and not just spending all day at the Capitol and then going home to their ranch and forgetting about the people that they represent. Mm -hmm. And then to close, what's a good website where people can learn more about you and your candidacy and the issues that are important to you? Yeah, you can find out more about me and my race at Cody Arn for Texas. That's Cody, C-O-D-Y-A-R-N, as in November, uh, for Texas, all spelled out. Uh, and that has all of my policy issues, everything. It also has all of my social media. You can follow me there. Uh, I use Twitter quite religiously. And so you can find uh, pretty constant updates on there. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Amy. This has been a great chat. And that was Cody Arn. Next up, Claire Campos O'Neill. Okay, I am here with Claire, and we are talking about your candidacy and why you're running today. Um, so maybe just to start, let's introduce yourself. Who are you? Um, why are you running to represent, I guess, parts of the Austin area and the Texas legislature? Yeah, my name is Claire Campos O'Neill. I'm running for state representative for House District 51. So that's a lot of Southeast Travis County. Um, and a big reason I'm running is um, I got really curious about local government. I would say four years ago when I moved to House District 51, I, it was a time in my life where I was pregnant, thinking of starting my family, so wanted to get more invested in my community. And I think when you're at that place, you realize things you like and things you don't like. So then I was like, okay, well, if I don't like this, who can help me fix it? So went into the journey of this is who my county commissioner is, this is who my city council rep is, this is who my state rep is, my congressional representative, and then digging into what their different roles are. Simultaneously, I was really involved in the local school district, Del Valley ISD, helping with a few different programs like food and tummies. We provide backpacks full of food to kids over the weekend at schools that have been identified as high free or reduced lunch enrollment. And also this program called Coats for Kids, where we give coats to children um, during the winter season, because uh, a lot of them don't have coats or they have coats that are too small or too big. So we provide that to children, the families. And as I was in the schools, I was seeing how much schools do more than just, you know, ABCs, one, two, threes. They're also making sure kids have food and clothing and um, that emotional support they might not be getting at home. And it made me want to continue that level of advocacy at a higher level. So when this open seat became available, I wanted to seize that opportunity to try to become the representative so I could bring in more services. Um, so education is definitely my lens and my passion and why um, I hope to be the representative for this area. Yeah, I, I love what you're talking about there with um, learning how to get engaged with your community. And you mentioned um, that part of what drove you there is that you were frustrated with the current state of things. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about that? What was bothering you that made you be like, you know what, I got, I got to dive into this a little bit more. Yes, it was one specific thing. So where I live, um, I live out here by McKinney Falls State Park, and there's not a lot on, on this side of town. There's homes and schools, but there's not much in regards to grocery stores or restaurants 
or health clinics. I mean, just the things that make life easy. We always have to drive west of 35 to get to anything. So where I live, there's, there's homes, but there's also a commercial space. So all of us had our eyes on this commercial space. What's going to come? When are we getting our coffee shop or whatever it was? And a neighbor found out that a charter school was coming to that commercial space. And that was a real head scratcher to a lot of us because we had just opened a brand new elementary school, Newton Collins in 2018. And there was another one just right, right down the road, Hillcrest Elementary. So we were like, wait a minute, of all things, why are we putting in another school? Like we don't really need schools. We need everything and anything else. So it started my journey of understanding what the difference is between charter schools and local ISDs and I was frustrated because it's um, it's a public school and yet there wasn't a public process to say we want this or we don't want this. And like I said, I've been involved with a local ISD and it's very different. I helped work on this 2819 Del Valley school bond and that was a whole process to get the community on board to say, yes, we're gonna rebuild these new schools. Voters had to agree to that. This charter school is just like, we're gonna buy the land, we're gonna come. And they did that without any sort of engagement. So as I learned more about charters, I learned more about state government and the way that they uh, function on this very two-tiered system. So that got me involved with finding a charter school expert to educate me, reaching out to the representative, Eddie Rodriguez, who's now running for Congress, getting him on board and helping us push back and say, you know, we actually don't want this as a community. So how do we stop it? And stopping it was not at all easy because there's not a playbook. It's, I think, intentionally obscure and, and difficult for people to understand um, the way they operate. So in the end, we wrote, me and my neighbors came to my house. We wrote letters to Education Commissioner Marath saying, I'm sorry, but we don't want this. We want we want the space available for something else. And in the end, the charter expansion amendment was denied. So I think IDEA still owns this land in Easton Park where I live, but they have not gotten approval from TEA to open. And being able to lead that very grassroots effort was empowering and made me feel like, oh, if we can do this, like what else can we do? So that was um, something that just got uh, the wheels spinning and put me on a path to think, maybe running's possible one day. And here I am a candidate. So yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about education. I think this is such a big thing that um, perhaps not everyone is even aware of, but the legislature, that's a, a huge component of what they do is really deal with our public education system and infrastructure across the entire state. And, and this has been a year or a few years now where education has been thrown for a complete loop. You know, you have all this disruption from COVID. There's a lot of issues with teachers and availability of teachers and staff and the impact of all these years of remote learning on our students what do you feel like the legislature should be focusing on in order to come back from this really difficult time? And obviously you mentioned charter schools um, and it seems like our, you're a big supporter of advancing more public schools, but what, what can we be doing as a legislature? What would you like to see them working on? Um, well, if we are going to live in a education landscape that does have charters and independent school districts, they need to at least be on the same footing. So I would definitely move forward to having more transparency with the charter sector. Um, but I think number one, we need 
to help teachers feel supported because so many teachers are leaving the profession. They are done. They are so stressed. This is something that they have loved for many years, spent their careers um, getting certifications for and invested in, you know, student loans. And many, and it's not like just first year teachers, it's ones who have been the profession 20 plus years that are like, I can't do this anymore. I don't feel respected. I am stretched so thin. Um, I was at an event yesterday where a gentleman was telling me that a superintendent was subbing for a class because there's no teachers and substitutes are hard to find. I'm actually going to go to a substitute training tomorrow because I want to substitute one day a week. Why? Um, one day a week. One. Yes. One day out of the week <laughs> um, during the campaign. So I can understand better what's happening in schools. But from my volunteer work and talk to, talking to educators that I know, I just hear that they're exhausted and they don't make enough money. I think the starting salary in Central Texas is around $50,000. I'm also a real estate agent and I know the median home price is upwards of $500,000 now. And that math does not make sense on how you could ever afford a home unless you get married or you maybe have roommates. And if you are a true professional, you shouldn't have to be in those, be in a position where um, you can't find a good living situation, you know, just on your own. It, it's, it's coming less and less accessible. So um, I would want to rally for teachers and educators and say, how do we remove the things that are making their lives harder? How do we take things off their plate? Are we doing, I've heard some elementary school teachers are having to go through these additional certification programs on top of their regular teaching schedules. Well, why are we doing that to them? And then now of all times, we need to get out of the way, let them do their job, pay them more money and um, come to them and say, how can we help you? Instead of us saying, we're going to we're going to be in the driver's seat. We need to take a little bit of a back seat and, and be better listeners. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you, you also mentioned that um, you're a realtor and deal with housing. This is obviously a huge issue in the Austin area. And one that, I don't know, I, I don't feel like the legislature has historically been super involved in housing issues. And in other states, they are. Legislatures have done a lot more about especially dealing with mass zoning laws and things like that. And so I'm wondering, as a realtor, someone who's seen this firsthand, what are your thoughts on what the legislature could be doing to, you know, perhaps fix some systemic issues throughout the entire state or especially in big cities to encourage more housing, encourage more affordable housing? What's kind of your take on what the legislature could be doing? Yes, that's something I'm still putting the pieces together on. Um, it's funny because in Texas, I don't know, there's times where we say we want to leave things to local control, but then when we assert local control, the state will want to take that right back if they don't like what is being put forward. Like the, you know, plastic bag ban in Austin and <laughs> a number of things. Um, but I have heard from talking to developers here in central Texas that it is incredibly hard to build in Austin. The process is long and cumbersome and expensive. And my understanding is that is because the county and the city, they don't, uh, they don't collaborate well together. 
a de developer here told me that many other cities in the state, it'll take about a year to do the permitting process. And in central Texas, it'll take two years. So they want to add more inventory, but they're held up because of bureaucracy. Um, and I find that a little ironic because, you know, we consider ourselves a very progressive liberal city, and yet we're kind of in the way of this one area of progress, which is getting more homes on the ground. And that is something that's necessary to, um, you know, <laughs> lower down the price. It is very much supply and demand, and there's incredible demand to be in this part of Texas. And yet our inventory is so low. Where I live in Easton Park, my husband and I bought our house for $300,000 four years ago. We could probably sell it now for 600. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's frightening because if I was, if my husband and I were in the position we were in four years ago now, starting our family, I don't know that we could start in a house like this. Maybe we could, but we would probably be sacrificing in many, many other areas and our budget would be so tight. So I would be interested to continue talking to different stakeholders and find out what can we realistically do to create more inventory? I do think it's very important whoever le the legislative representative is, has good relationships with city council and the county commissioner's court and say, we all need to row in the same direction. How can we work together? We're all representing our constituents. So I very much, you know, would put, I don't even think I have this ego-mindedness of like, this is my area, this is your area. It's like, this is all of our area. You know, let's all work together so we can make life better for the folks that live here. That's the approach I would take. And I would hope in the process, the solutions would sort of reveal themselves and what we could realistically get, get accomplished. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned realistically get accomplished. I feel like that is the big sticking point with the legislature, especially for, quite frankly, Austin area representatives, right? You mentioned there is this history of a lot of antagonism between our city council and the leg the legislature and the legislature is dominated by the Republican Party and and this part of Austin and the district you're representing is a largely Democratic district and there's just always this question of like, what can you actually do at the legislature it's a hard place to work. Um, obviously you haven't done it before but what are your thoughts or your approach and thinking how to be an effective lawmaker still, you know, as a member of the minority party in mm -hmm. a state like Texas? Yeah, I think that you have to be curious. You have to be willing to say, I don't know everything. I'm here to learn. People who, who have been here many years longer than me, please come and teach me. I want to understand the history so I can know what worked and didn't work in the past and how we can move forward. I think you have to be really kind to people and approachable so they do want to have that conversation with you. Because if you're defensive and you have your guard up, it's hard to have a conversation and move towards any sort of collaboration. So that's something I would lead with. And I hope that attitude would in kind pull people to me and say, well, let's just go talk to Claire and see if we can find commonality on some issues. And I would do that on both sides of the aisle because why, I, I don't know, I think there's always room to find that common, common value. Okay, maybe we're way on different ends here, but here, like, let's kind of see where we can get close together and make this work. Um, 
I mean, as campaigning so far, that's been the part I've enjoyed the most is talking to different legislative directors who have said, this is our priority. This is what we care about. This is what we want to move forward. And then talking to maybe someone who's on the other side of that and, and hearing how they feel about it and be like, okay, well, maybe there's some room here in the middle or we can all come together and um, create, find that common goal so that um, we're not just stagnant. Definitely. And, and we're running a little short on time, but I want to end with um, uh, two questions that we can maybe get some quicker answers on. We've talked a lot about obviously what your priorities are, but um, let's let's go with three. You know, what, what are three things that if you were elected and you felt like you were able to achieve or at least begin working on in earnest, what would they be? Yeah, I mean, I think we touched on two of them. Public education would be the, the top one especially because I think education right now is at just like a tipping point that it needs the support now from legislators. The second one would be housing and finding how we can create more housing inventory in Texas, because it's not only central Texas, but across the state, we're seeing rapid growth. And the third one would be healthcare, especially in my area where we are a healthcare desert. And again, finding well, who are those other folks who don't typically work in this space that can help us move that forward? Like I did meet with the Texas Association of Realtors and healthcare is now on their legislative agenda because they're seeing that in when these rural areas have hospitals close, it's really hurting their um, population. I mean, not surprising, like you need, people need access to hospitals. So seeing where can I pull in other people to help us move in the right direction? Um, so that would, yeah, those would be the top three. <laughs> Great. And then just to close, you know, one thing that I always find really frustrating about the Texas legislature, especially as someone who deals, tends to deal a little bit more with city council and commissioner's court and local, the local levels, it can be, the legislature feels really unapproachable sometimes. And it can be hard for the average citizen or resident to get engaged. If you were elected, what are some, what would you like to bring to the office that could be unique or different to try and engage the public and the members of your district in a genuine way? Yes, I, I think it's so important that an elected official, I mean, like you were saying, as a Democrat and the, and the legislator, you don't have power, but you can have really great constituent services, which can directly impact people. So I would be the kind of representative that would be going to community events, specifically school events, because I think a lot of people are already there. Um, engaging, whether it's like meet the teacher night, um, just things that come up throughout the school year and say, and talking to people and saying, how's it going? How can I help you? I'm your representative. I also th think I am a very approachable person and that I'm not the typical kind of legislator you see. I'm 36. I have two young boys. I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, I, yeah, I, I can sometimes get in my head and be like, you know, because I am, I'm not those things. Like, am I ready? Am I qualified enough to be someone who works at the legislator? And then I'm like, why not? I, I, I know enough to be prepared for this position. And if I can get in, hopefully people can see myself and them, and that will help sort of uh, bring it down to earth a little bit. Like, oh yeah. I see Claire out in the community. So I'm going to go visit her at the Capitol and like have my kids field trip go too. And right. yeah, let's do this. This is, this is a public office and I'm a public representative. So come on, public, let's hang out. 
Great. And then just to close, what is a website where people could learn more about your campaign? Yes, they can learn about my campaign at clearfortexas.com. And then all social media is just Claire for Texas at Claire for Texas. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And that was Claire Campos O'Neill. Next up, Matt Worthington. I am here with Matt and we are talking all about elections today, obviously. Um, So let's just start with the basics, a little bit of background on who you are and why you're running. Yeah, my name is Matt Worthington. Um, I'm a former special education teacher and data scientist that specializes in public policy um, data and sort of issues. Uh, I'm running to make sure that we've got somebody in one of the safest seats. A lot of people don't realize that, but this seat that we're running in is open for the first time in 20 years. It's one of the safest blue seats in the legislature. It's the safest blue seat in Travis County. And I'm trying to make sure that we've got somebody um, running in this seat that has an active track record of showing up in our community over the last few years and who's going to do a really good job of, of showing up for folks and being proactive in this seat. All right. So I want to talk some about a little bit more about your background and community experience. I saw that you've done some work with Austin's Early Childhood Council and also Del Valley Community Coalition. Can you talk about some what, what the work you've been doing with those two groups in particular? Yeah. So I serve as the vice president of the Del Valley Community Coalition and as vice chair for the city's Early Childhood Council. Uh, the city, the Early Childhood Council is, is a one of the city's uh, boards and commissions. I was appointed originally by Councilwoman, then Councilwoman Delia Garza, and was reappointed um, in my current term by Councilwoman Vanessa Fuentes. And now I serve as the, the vice chair for the city's early childhood council. And so, you know, over the last four years, the kind of work that I've done, uh, it, it includes everything from advocating for the expansion of funding and access to more high quality childcare, um, you know, in, in our community in Southeast Travis County, um, but also across all of central Texas. So, most recently, the Early Childhood Council, we made a series of strong recommendations that earmarked about, tw- uh, I think it was when the council passed, it was somewhere in the ballpark about $10 million that got split up between Austin ISD and Del Valley ISD. 1.5 million of that went to Del Valley ISD. And the whole purpose of that was trying to mitigate a lot of the impacts that the childcare community and a lot of early childhood workers have felt um, throughout the pandemic and making sure that more families have access to high quality childcare opportunities, um, because that's a critical part of, of making sure that communities are thriving. You know, for a lot of folks, if they don't have childcare, they can't go to work. You know, um, somebody's, you know, it's like, you have, if, if you have kids, I've got two young kids. And so um, I, I certainly am very familiar with, with uh, what that's like, but, um, but yeah, so the Early Child Council, we've kind of done an incredible amount of work trying to advocate for families and really thinking about the ecosystems that support children. Um, with the Del Valley Community Coalition, uh, I've worked to um, kind of really try to be there for my neighbors uh, in the Eastern Crescent when the pandemic hit and when the winter storm hit. You know, I, Del Valley Community Coalition, we do a lot of work with Austin Latino Coalition. 
um, I'm heavily involved as somebody who is Latino. I care a lot about the Latino community, um, you know, and, and so I give you an example. When the winter storm hit, uh, we helped organize over $100,000 worth of food, water, sanitary supplies and hot meals to, you know, people in the Eastern Crescent. We also had uh, diapers and other baby supplies and just kind of essentials, because at that time, so many people could not get access to those things. Store shelves were empty. Um, lines were crowded. And so if you were living in the Eastern Crescent, especially because of the lack of uh, grocery stores and sort of big box stores, people that live in the Eastern Crescent, they are very far from a lot of those resources that everybody else may have access to or may be able to get access to first. But at that time, a lot of, a lot of those stores didn't even have food. And so we, we worked with folks to get donations, organize those donations, and get resources out to the community. Um, and then outside of, of that, those two roles, I do a lot of work just on my own, kind of as somebody who's a data scientist that specializes in public policy data. You know, I, I've used my data skills to help expand the number of pre-K seats in Central Texas through a partnership between Austin ISD and the United Way for Greater Austin, where they tried to leverage a, a, uh, a piece of legislation that got passed a few years ago that they saw as an opportunity to provide more pre-K funding, to pull down funding from the state. So I helped build an app that made those conversations go a lot easier for childcare providers who were considering that partnership. And then I've done a lot of work, you know, around vaccine equity, trying to make sure that, you know, when vaccines were first being rolled out, um, that we were kind of pushing the envelope and trying to provide as much clarity around vaccine equity. Um, at that time, I think there was a lot of concern about the fact that some of those maps of vaccine uptake, that mm -hmm. they started to look exactly like every other map of Austin, where east of 35, you had low uptake rates, and west of 35, you had high uptake rates. So I was publishing op-eds and trying to kind of raise media attention uh, to the importance of vaccine equity for my neighbors in the Eastern Crescent. And then statewide, you know, I, I post a lot of work around uh, what's going on in the legislature. I did some uh, pro bono data work for orgs like Equality Texas, trying to help them tell the story of how the Texas legislature was attacking LGBTQ Texans at an unprecedented rate. Um, and yeah, so I, that that for me is a huge part of of doing this. Is you know I look I've looked around in this community in Southeast Travis County, and I've seen elected officials like Councilwoman Vanessa Fuentes who are so present, who show up so much, and and that to me is an important part of being an elected official. And as somebody who pays attention to the legislature, who has a degree from the LVJ school, who has a degree in, you know a master's in education. Uh, that focused on special education as a former special education teacher. You know, I know the importance of these issues and the importance of kind of showing up for your neighbors. And that's, that's honestly why I, I, I feel like I'm best suited for this role. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk some about education. That's obviously something you have background with professionally <laughs> and also in the volunteer space. What do you want to see the Texas legislature do to improve our public education system? You know, obviously there's a whole host of issues happening right now and COVID has not made anything easier. Um, but, you know, I, I guess two things. One, what do you want to see the legislature working on with public education? And tied to that, one thing I, I noticed on your website is also the daycare component and uh, pre-K 
and the rising cost of that and the effect of that that is having on Texas families as well. So if you could maybe talk about those two issues. Yeah. So as a former special education teacher, um, I, I think I've got my own sort of lived experience of what it's like to be in the classroom and how challenging it is to, to do the work that um, is required of you as a public school teacher. And then, and then sort of balancing on top of that, right, your own financial liabilities and needs. And, you know, a lot of people in our generation have things like student loans. Um, and if you have kids, you've got childcare on top of that. A lot of people, I think Councilwoman Garza used to talk about, you know, her three mortgages. It was her mortgage, childcare, and uh, student loans. And so, you know, that that's kind of something that that is at top of mind for me. But, um, and, and I, I, I mentioned that because one of the things that we talk about in our campaign is the need to provide educators with livable wages. Um, and that is something that if you look at the data, you look at what educators in Texas make sort of on average, um, which there are annual surveys that get produced about this. Educators come into the classroom making about, excuse me, $43,000 a year. Uh, after 10 years of service, it's about $50,000 a year. And then after 20 years, it's about $57,000 a year. And when you compare that to uh, research that's been done around what it costs to sort of, you know, account for basic necessities in life, whether that's food, transportation, childcare, housing, uh, you know, a smartphone plan or a phone plan, um, and those other liabilities that I mentioned, like student loans, and you look at the contextualized data for Texas and for Travis County, you start to realize that if you're an educator and you're the person in the family who's sort of tasked with being the primary breadwinner, the person who's going to, you know, make sure that all the bills get paid, you can't, in, in most scenarios, you cannot, with those median averages, across the state or in Travis County, where teachers report on average making about $53,000 a year, you, you can't live on those wages. And so for me, it's really important to, to push for educators to make better wages so that they can not only provide for their families, but that they can do one of the most important jobs, if not the most important job in Texas, which is building our future. You know, we've got 5.3 million students in this state. That student population uh, has been becoming poorer faster than it's getting bigger. And one of the things that was done in the, in the most recent uh, legislative session, not well, not 2021, but in 2019, before COVID hit, was uh, they passed HB3, which was one of the you know, first overhauls of school finance in several decades without a court-ordered mandate. Um, and one of the things that that particular legislation did was it accounted for poverty in districts and tried to reimburse uh, school districts in Texas at different rates based off of those varying levels of poverty within a given district. So we know that the legislature does uh, you know, understand that, that poverty matters and it actually has an impact on districts in terms of what they need. We need to make sure that that we're getting districts not only you know more equitable funding but that we're getting them more adequate funding and and there was work that we could have you know improved upon hb3 back then we we sort of built as a state hb3 based off of a uh, one-time injection of funds um, we sort of bought down our our you know tax rates uh, through tax compression which is a uh, something that we've done in the past before um, and so because we've done that in the past before, and we know those tax rates started to creep back up, we know that those two methods, you know, relying on a one-time injection of funds 
and also you know, buying down those tax rates, that those are things that aren't necessarily sustainable. They're helpful tools. You know, I'm not gonna say that they're not needed in this moment, but as a state where we've got 5.3 million students, we've gotta be thinking about you know, how do we provide more for our future and ensure that our students are growing up to be you know, innovative and to sort of lead the lives that they envision for themselves and that families who really want their, their kids and their communities to thrive, that they can do that. And my concern is, is that, you know, if we're not paying educators well enough, if we're not thinking about more sustainable revenue sources, you know, our future feels uh, very precarious. And, and, and like we're, we're putting ourselves in jeopardy, you right. know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. Do you think there's an appetite to do that at the legislature and that like as a Democrat, that's a place where you could you could lead, you know, there's always this very difficult balance, I think, as being a, a Democratic lawmaker at the Texas legislature and effectiveness and uh, trying to push issues that are important. Education, you know, it's not <laughs> things have happened in fits and starts, but there's some opportunity there to get things done. You know, it's not a it's not as if Republicans are unwilling to discuss um, education <laughs> in different ways. But like, what do you think you could bring to the table to actually do something on this issue? Well, I think one classroom experience, I, you know, if I, <laughs> if I uh, was elected in the legislature, I'd join less than a handful of legislators in Texas who have classroom experience. I think that matters. You know, I, I think we've got a lot of people that come from different backgrounds who are deciding what's going to happen in classrooms and in school districts, and none of them have ever taught, um, you know, or a large majority of them have never taught. I think that's important. Uh, I think it's important to have the perspective of a teacher. Um, but I also think as a data scientist, it's important to know how to make sense of large quantities of information. That is what a lot of people consult for me. It's my expertise. You know, most recently I was leading data initiatives at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin, you know, where we were looking at that intersection of data science and public policy. And if you look around the country at a bunch of other public policy schools, the importance of data science and understanding what's happening in communities is, is a growing space for analysis and for research. And that is because it is an opportunity to provide more clarity. Um, but I also think that because this, this particular district is one of the safest blue seats, you know, an answer for me in terms of what can you do is you can make sure that when <laughs> the primary is over, that we're going out to register more voters and we're going to drive more turnout for a lot of these statewide races. If you go back to 2019 and think about why the legislature had a session that was low on headlines and high on policy, it was because the 2018 session was very competitive. You know, a lot of people uh, on, uh, in the Republican party lost seats. Those races were a lot closer. And I think the message that voters sent at that time was, hey, we want to see more productivity. And you know what? People responded to that on both sides of the aisle. So I, I think that we've got to make sure that in the Democratic Party that we're doing the work of driving more voter registration, driving more voter turnout for these statewide races. Because if one of those does flip in November, then we do have the potential to you know, come together and actually work on meaningful legislation Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's that's one part of that answer. The other part of that answer is that, you know, as a as somebody who does data, I'm acutely aware that there is a lack of critical information that the state makes available to 
uh, cities and counties. You know, uh, in the news, you've seen a lot about um, the sort of uh, the state comptroller pulling information uh, offline about Chapter 313 agreements, which have created a, a, a liability of, of I, I think the latest estimate was uh, about $10 billion for the state. That, that, that lack of transparency is really important, but there's all the all other data sets that exist at various state agencies like the Texas Workforce Commission. They collect information about childcare facilities, about how much supply and demand exists at, at childcare facilities, like how much enrollment capacity they have versus how much enrollment they actually have. That kind of information, if you make that available to you know, folks at, at the city and county levels, they can take action and, and do more progressive work without needing a, a state bill being passed. You know? And so I think that there's opportunities both in a polarized environment where the legislature is gonna do things like they did this past session and focus on red meat issues. And I also think that if we have those competitive elections, if one of those statewide seats turn out, then there are real opportunities to do more work around education, around healthcare, infrastructure, higher ed, a number of other critical areas mm -hmm. um, if, if the state is more competitive in those uh, statewide races. Mm -hmm. um, we're running a little short on time, but I want to make sure we have a chance to touch on a few of your other priorities. So we talked about education. Obviously, that seems like a big one for you, but um, maybe if you could name two other high priority issues that you'd really want us jump right into or focus on immediately if you were elected. Yeah. I mean, this district uh, we, I talk a lot about in our campaign, the need for improving infrastructure. You know, uh, District 51 is fascinating to me just from a data standpoint. Um, you know, and I, and I say fascinating in the sense that I, I, you don't see too many spaces like this where uh, a part of District 51 is those iconic things that we know about Austin. It's South Congress, it's Rainy Street, it's all the stuff that shows up in postcards. And also we have a really large rural area in the Eastern Crescent that you know feels more like West Texas or something like that than it does downtown Austin, um, and so a lot of those areas, you know, I, I talk about them a lot because people don't understand that we have an incredible amount of food insecurity in Southeast Travis County, that we have a dearth of transportation infrastructure, that we have really high poverty rates, that we have growing housing instability. People don't know that we have uh, in Travis County compared to other house districts that we have some of the lowest life expectancy rates um, in Travis County, that we have some of the highest rates of reported poor mental health and reported poor physical health. Um, you know, to me, that speaks to the fact that we lack critical infrastructure, both hard infrastructure and social infrastructure. You know, we have uh, a critical lack of healthcare clinics and pharmacies. Um, that is something that has been sort of realized throughout the pandemic again and again and again, all these pop-up testing sites, none of them are in Southeast Travis County, you know? And so I, I organized uh, to, again, to try and get a thousand test kits for my neighbors because we realized that Austin Public Health was not gonna be able to provide more test kits. Um, you know, there's a lack of grocery stores and healthy food options. And so for me, I think there's a real opportunity in the legislature to make sure that we're not only improving that, but we're improving things like water quality, that we're improving things like uh, energy infrastructure to make sure that our neighbors, you know, have uh, sufficient energy and that they have clean water. Mm -hmm. I remember during the winter storm, one of the things I was incredibly concerned by was uh, we did these wellness checks for seniors 
um, trying to make sure that people were, were safe. They had what they needed. I got connected to somebody with an Austin, Texas address. And I, I asked them, I said, Hey, um, you know, do you have energy? Do you have heat? And I said, yep, Matt, we got, we got that. And I said, do you have water? And they said, no, but I'm just going to tell you right now, Matt, we've never had clean water. And I was like, I'm sorry, you live in Austin, Texas, you know, and they lived in the Eastern Crescent. They lived in district 51. Um, and they, they said that their community has never had clean water, but they had worked together to, you know, put a well together and make sure that their neighbors had sufficient access to clean water. We've got to be doing more for folks to make sure that um, they can lead healthy lives, right? That, that those, those maps and those statistics about District 51, that we're seeing a, a, a noticeable and a marked change in those numbers and those metrics. Uh, mm -hmm. The people that have grown up here deserve that. The people that are moving here uh, should absolutely be interested in contributing to that for their neighbors as well. And I think yeah. the legislature can play an important role in that. And then just finally, before we close, you know, one thing uh, with the Texas legislature, it, it, it's a little bit, it's fast moving. It doesn't meet that often. It can be difficult, I think, for the average resident to be involved or be connected to their representative at all. If you were elected, how would you kind of try and bring that community voice into the work that you're doing? Yeah. Uh, I, I talk to the folks I work with all the time, uh, the folks that are on the ground. You know, if you go look at the folks that are endorsing, you know, our, our campaign, it's a lot of community leaders. It's a lot of people that show up for their neighbors. And so for me, elevating those voices isn't that hard because I'm already connected to uh, those folks in the community, right? And so it's, uh, it's a little bit baffling, you know, when I hear people say, well, we haven't had somebody, you know, show up to this before, or, you know, not necessarily in the seat, but just, you know, you hear those kind of conversations. And, and for me, um, I, I tell people, I'm like, hey, I'll give you my phone number, you know, <laughs> like you call me and tell me where to show up um, and I'll be there if I don't already know that I need to be there just on my own merits because of the work I do in the community. Mm -hmm. So I, I think for me, it's, um, it's about making sure that, that you're connected to folks on the ground. And that's something that I've already been doing for the past couple of years. Um, and that's, that's how I've become acutely aware of, you know, what's going on in Southeast Travis County and those unique experiences and challenges that folks have been, you know, wrestling with long before the pandemic, uh, long before the winter storm, but now exacerbated by both of those things. Right. And, and just to close here, uh, what's a good website where people can learn more about you and the issues that are important to you? Yep. So uh, mattfortexas51.com. We are one of the only campaigns that have published a full policy platform. Uh, we've got our, our website available in English and Spanish. Um, you know, we're as somebody, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, my wife and I were both Latino and uh, to me, it's important to, to lead the way that, that you're, you know, campaigning um, and to campaign the way that you lead. And so we're trying to make sure that everybody in our community uh, has access to the information that we're trying to put out about the vision we have for District 51. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks. And that was Matt Worthington. Next up, Cynthia Valadez-Mata. Okay, I'm here with Cynthia and we're talking about her candidacy today. Let's start with just some background on you. Who are you? how did you get to where you are running for office? So where did I get started? My goodness, that mm -hmm. could, we could be on that one for quite a while. Um, <laughs> I got started very on at an early age, practically out of the womb. 
Um, my parents are both extremely politically and community active in the community. My father was a local attorney. He worked his hardest to help give others a second chance, did whatever he could to um, try and show or lead a new pathway for those that were having issues or struggling and used his expertise in his arena to help them along in that aspect. My mother is a long time and comes from practically generational um, family of community activism. We, she, her family aside originally from the Valley and have remained active in the community in one way or another um, for as long as I can remember. She started out very young, um, following my grandfather around. He was a school administrator up in Dallas and followed him around. They were going through desegregation and she was right along with him going to rallies and protests. And that kind of started her whole movement. Um, she became very active in the Chicano movement in the seventies and fighting for civil rights, fighting for education, equity, equality. And she continues that passion today. And I know for some, I kind of sound like a cliche, but she is one, my biggest inspiration and role model. She is one who truly gives back selflessly, no matter what cost. And she does not care if she is the only person standing alone to do what's right. She does it and she speaks her voice. She speaks her mind and she speaks for those that don't have a voice. And so that's where my parents instilled in, in me that importance of just giving back to the community, being a voice for those who can't speak for themselves. So for me, whether it was, you know, block walking for candidates, marching in rallies, going to protests, I was active. I was an active participant through every part of the political process, but as well as helping out the community. And I started my own personal journey when I was in college. I grew up here in the district. I ended up graduating here in Austin from Austin High. And then I went to Southwest Texas, um, which is now Texas State. <laughs> um, but it was that 2003 legislature. I was in, I was at Texas State. I took an internship at the Capitol. I took a, a job at the Capitol. I started out as a Senate messenger and that was my introduction into state government. I complete, I became completely fascinated with how things worked, the testimony process, committee hearings, activities on the floor, and started my involvement there. I ended up leaving when I graduated from college. Um, I did not stay on as a staffer when I graduated. I had a degree in criminal justice, and at the time I thought I was going to go into law enforcement. Um, I have a little sister who is, um, has physical and developmental disabilities. She is now 30. They did not expect her to live this long at all. She is terminally ill, but she's technically undiagnosed. And so going into law enforcement and really helping out my parents the way that I was, I kind of rethought that process and I went into a different aspect. So I went to go work at the attorney general's office mm -hmm. and I worked in victim services. And so I did victim services for almost 15 years, still giving back and helping out the community in any way that I could. And I worked with victims all over Texas, providing um, victim services from the standpoint of 
after they might, they were a victim of a crime, we would assist with counseling, medical bills. If there was a homicide, we assist the family with funeral benefits. Um, I did that for almost 10 years. Loved that, loved being able to help people and working in that environment. But I ended up taking, a, I took a step back and I worked in grants. So I helped manage the money that the state passed out to law enforcement agencies and nonprofits mm. to provide those direct services. And had a, all of it was just completely rewarding. Um, then left there and decided it was you know kind of the change. It was time for a change. And it was like, yeah, I was still throughout that whole process. I had stayed involved working in the community and being part of legislative legislature from an organization standpoint. Um, I became, after college, I also became very active with LULAC, which is the League of United Latin American Citizens. And we had our own legislative agenda. We participated in legislative days, um, our days of lobbying. And then outside of that, I was also chair for the Austin Tejano Democrats. And then I also became very active in the Junior League. Um, Shortly after that, I started, you know, the issues facing our community. We were looking at, um, at that point, 10-1 hadn't been passed yet, the single member districts. So this was just right before that. Um, We started, we founded our Holly Neighborhood Coalition, and I was a founder and co-chair for that organization of our neighborhood neighborhood association for a while, Um, giving back to the community. We had the opportunity to work with the, the UT uh, School of their planning, and we they had funds, and so we assisted in repairing homes for families who are either dispa- disabled or on fixed incomes, and their house was in disrepair, and so we would help repair their homes. Hmm. We did some amazing work, worked some, with some great families, absolutely loved it, um, but still being involved in the legislative process, working with LULAC. Then also we started another organization called HOPE, which was Hispanics Organized for Political Education. And with HOPE and LULAC and a few other organizations, we partnered with the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus and the Senate Hispanic Caucus, and we created legislative summits. So these legislative summits would go all throughout Texas to the seven, to major cities, to the major cities. And we would hear issues directly from the community, take those issues down, and then the MALC and the Senate Hispanic Caucus would take those back to the legislature for the upcoming session, mm-hmm. work that through the legislative process, and then come back and then debrief the community on what was passed, what wasn't passed, and how to prepare for the next session. Doing all that, coming back now to 2019, um, when I was doing my career change, <laughs> I was still kind of wishing I had gone back and kept the job in the Capitol. So I was like, you know what, why not now? Let's get involved. There's a lot going on. We've had um, some interesting sessions. And so in 2019, I went to this back to the Capitol and was been working in the Senate the last several years. I've been working for our Senator Nathan Johnson out of Dallas um, and was truly another eye-opening experience. These last two sessions, plus the special sessions all last year were as very tumultuous years, tumultuous years with COVID winter storm Yuri. Um, and we saw a lot of areas where our state could have improved. Well, where our state needed to improve Mm -hmm. and where we were failing and how to fix that. So now coming back to this race, um, when Eddie 
made the announcement that he was going to be running for Congress that opened up this seat. And I've been active in this community. I've been active in the legislature. And this has a, this community has a very special place in my heart. I grew up here. I've been active here. And I've seen all the things that took place at the Capitol these past couple of years. I mean, I've seen the last several years, but immediately these past several years and knew that our community needed a strong voice, needed a, somebody who understood the process, knew how to get things done, but also had those relationships in the building and outside of the building to help move our agendas forward, making sure that our community was taken care of and the needs were addressed. Right. I, I want to talk about some of those issues. You know, you mentioned Winter Storm Uri, and that was obviously a huge issue and, and a big issue at the legislature and an area where I think a lot of people feel the legislature fell short after the storm, um, perhaps not going far enough and implementing reforms to prevent these things from happening again. What's like, what would you like to see the legislature do to make sure we don't have another crisis with our electric grid? Sure. Well, with the electric grid, we discovered that we actually did have quite a few things already in the books that actually weren't taking place. Um, But then we also saw where we were failing um, as far as working with the PUC, working with the TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, maybe also, also working with the Railroad Commission, and then as well as ERCOT and all of our energy providers. And so now we have this task force that was been created by the legislature, um, Chief Nim Kidd. We're bringing all of those organiza- all of those agencies together. Chief Nim Kidd is now overseeing that task force. They've come out. With, they're coming out with some rules. We want to see how that's done. The legislature also came out with several um, bills and to put into place to help with generation, to help with well aligning communication, um, mm-hmm. but we need to see more that's done. We need to see the bills that were enacted. Let's see those get enacted, but we have winter knocking on our doorsteps. Right. We have two days of freezing weather coming up along with rain and our community is scared. I'm sure they're worried about whether or not it's going to fail again. And that's not a concern that our community should have. So I want to see how these bills do. We're kind of stuck in a catch 22 on that one. And we're also in an interim. So last year it was during winter storm Uri occurred during a session. Right. So they were able to actually start putting in legislation, trying to enact some things. Um, But unfortunately not a lot was done. Task force was created. Okay. Well, that task force is just going to look to see how things were handled or panned out during the interim and then go back next session to try and fix those things. So now we're here and hopefully that line of communication has been open and they've been moving forward. Um, they just did a, a study, I think 361 out of 364 of our generators are, or the generation of our plants are up and running. They're up to code. Um, there's three that are out, but we want to make sure that energy and gas is all dispersed to homes um, in their time of need and the time mm-hmm. that they're going to need it the most um, as the weather is going to be getting a little colder and it's going to be changing. But as far as me, I want to see how these things get done. I want to see how the, the task force, what they come up with. And I want to see us improve our weatherization. I want to see us, what other options do we have? You know, uh, Vicki Goodwin and uh, Representative Vicki Goodwin and 
uh, Senator Sarah Eckhart had a really good bill that they had filed last session that unfortunately did not make it out of committee, um, where there was an opportunity where those gas flares, they are going to be, they've just dispersed out into the air and that energy is not reused. Let's work with companies to see how we can reuse that, get, put it back into our system, put it back to homes, and then also maybe provide help with um, the, comp the companies in improving the process, improving their uh, capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked about energy. What other priorities would be top of mind for you if you're elected in this position? What other issues would you want to be focusing on? So another issue that is of great importance to me um, and has a kind of, you know, has a personal note is expanding Medicaid in Texas. Um, right now, at, we have over 700,000 Texans who in one way or another have no access to healthcare. Um, we are one of the highest uninsured states in the nation, and that's unacceptable. We, this last session, um, actually my boss, um, he passed a bill that would help, um, sorry, I'm going to try to find it. Okay. So he passed a bill, which was SB 1296 and discovered that with no cost to the state, um, at no expense to the state in our state budget, that they could get an additional billion dollars from the federal government that would provide low and middle income individuals with access to health insurance. So now because of that bill, over 200,000 more Texans will have access to health care. Okay, well that's 200,000, but that still leaves a large part of our population without access to health care. And that's something that we need to address. This is already funds that we're paying, that the taxpayers, that the public is paying to the government that could be, these are billions of dollars that could be coming back to us. Right. Do you think it's care. possible to for the legislature to do something like that? It's just seemed like an issue that there hasn't been a lot of traction on. There hasn't been. There is actually bipartisan support. If we've had to get creative in mm -hmm. this sense and at this point, if we cannot get, I mean, it's still going to be a passion. It's still going to be something that we're going to try to, to push forward on the overall picture. Right. But it's going to be attacking it from two fronts, trying to get expand, uh, Medicaid expanded, but then also chipping away at it, finding those creative like ways. Like that bill you just mentioned. Right. Find those creative ways that we can start providing access to healthcare for Texans. Got it. Um, and that's just, it's one of mine. That's one of our just it's a passion of mine. Um, but also not only that it's for our families mm -hmm. who are already struggling with dealing with COVID dealing with just your, our high, you know, um, my mind just slipped me, <laughs> but dealing with, you know, dealing with COVID dealing with other health issues, right? Um, of course, dealing with, you know, we've got among our Latino population, one of uh, we do struggle with diabetes, we struggle with high blood pressure, we struggle with heart issues. And so if you're not well, if you haven't taken care of yourself, it's really hard for you to take care of others. Mm -hmm. So when you have loved ones in your home and you don't have access to healthcare, that affects on so many levels, because then you're not able to go to work, you're not able to provide for your families, 
And that has a bigger effect on our community as a whole, but more macro just on that family and their nuclear. And we want to help provide access and not only access, but equitable access so that people in all areas will be able to have um, proper health care. We're running a little short on time, but I want to make sure we have uh, a chance to talk maybe about one more issue. Um, so we talked about energy and healthcare, um, maybe one more that you want to bring up that would be of, of higher priority for you. Sure. Um, another thing would be education. I come from a long line of educators. Um, our state right now, we're probably funding about 38% to school districts. I'd like to see our state funding increase to 50% and help reduce a lot of that stress on our, uh, public education system. We've also seen this hoopla this issue with critical race theory and now we have education is being um pretty much attacked our history is being changed in a term which a a term a a theory an idea critical race theory is now kind of being perverted by the other side Um, critical race theory is actually a graduate level course and critical race theory is actually um it's funny because that terminology is actually never used in the bill mm-hmm. and it was only used by the governor when he wrote his executive order, which is already putting out the wrong message and has now changed it. What we, what the idea is to look beyond race and to find a way to open communications and how we can all work together and fight that systemic racism. And which is an issue we are still trying to address today. And so that's another thing on a few levels, just education, um, helping the funding, working with our school districts, the stress that they've had, especially with our teachers, with the COVID and with the students, with, edu- with educators at all levels, but as well as the funding to provide the services and the resources that they need to have a quality education. Right. And then just before we close, what's a good website where people can learn more about you and issues that matter to you? Sure. My website is CynthiaForTexas.com and it's Cynthia for Texas on uh, all social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And uh, if anybody has any questions, I am happy to, to talk, reach out. Um, so another thing that I want to, I want to do is have an open door policy. I've worked in the community a long time and it's going to be a community-based approach where I would take the community with me to the Capitol. And so if anybody has any questions or issues, I am happy to, to talk. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks. I appreciate you. And that was Cynthia Valadez Mata. And it was the last of our interviews for today. There are actually two other candidates on the ballot for this race, Mike Hendricks and Albino Cadenas, but they did not answer our request for an interview. And they also didn't reply to the League of Women Voters Guide. Mike Hendricks is a community organizer who's been pretty active in LGBTQIA plus and criminal justice reform activism with groups like the ACLU of Texas and the Marijuana Policy Project. Albino Cadenas has been an APD police officer for the past 10 years and has been endorsed by several local law enforcement affiliated organizations. And that's pretty much our show for today. Remember that early voting for the primaries begins on February 14th and election day is March 1st. You can find info on polling locations and wait times, as well as a sample ballot on votetravis.com. 
And be sure to stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Austin Common Radio Hour. And keep an eye on our Instagram page because we'll be publishing election guides throughout the month of February so you'll feel super prepared to cast your vote in the primary. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the TR Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at TR Girl Band. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>